Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In sports, narratives have great power for good and for ill. Sometimes this works out for the best. The NBA has thrived on narratives in its greatest days, including in recent years. In golf, the narratives of the world have not been kind. The headline, the thing you hear more often than praise of the fantastic young field on tour or innovative new ways to take in the game, or anything else for that matter, is about how golf is dying. People love to say it, and they love to ask why. To debunk this narrative, my guest this week is Greg Nathan, Chief Business Officer for the National Golf Foundation. The NGF does some definitive market research for the game of golf and works hard to track participation in the game. This research, by which I mean, of course, the actual facts, contradict this narrative. The future of golf is not bleak. In fact, it's bright. I'm Tim Williams. Welcome to Ground Under Repair. I'm joined this week by Greg Nathan, Chief Business Officer of the National Golf Foundation. The NGF conducts market research for the game of golf. They put out an annual report on participation. And they've done some remarkable research in golf participation, specifically among millennials. Greg, thanks for coming on Ground Under Repair. My pleasure, Tim. Thanks for having me. I think we should just go ahead and start with the headline. People have been saying in recent years that golf is in a sharp decline. What does the research say in response to that sentiment? I think that people shouldn't, shouldn't believe... Uh, everything they read and hear in the media about golf. I think that we've seen, I'd say for at least three or four years now, uh, the, the, uh, the very clear indication that the media believes that negative stories about golf are popular. And I would answer that by, by saying rather than uh, the popular uh, media narrative that golf is quote unquote dying, you know, golf is competitive, just like a lot of other industries. So just to give you an example, Tim, you know, when, when uh, golf courses close in any particular market, uh, the local media will start by saying, oh my God, this particular course closed, it's been open uh, since 1942, and its closure is a sign that golf is really on a steep decline. But they never seem to tell the whole story that since 1942, or even since uh, 1982, that seven other 18 old golf courses were built within 20 miles of that particular course that closed. And it's that kind of dynamic that has really created, just in terms of golf supply and demand uh, balance, uh, it's created some challenges for individual golf courses. But you know, that's just one way to illustrate that what you would see uh, in the media is somewhat sensationalized about golf being, you know, facing such challenges. 
I mean, right here in Palm Beach County, for example, where uh, the NGF is based, uh, just on PJ Boulevard alone, there's probably 100 restaurants. And maybe just based on the dynamics of restaurant supply and demand, uh, 20% of those restaurants will close within the first year of opening. Well, I don't see a lot of articles uh, online or in the Palm Beach Post saying that uh, restaurants are dying, that the whole idea of dining out is, uh, is in steep decline. So it's all about the way it's, it's presented. Um, yeah. So I, 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 hopefully that just paints a little bit of a picture in terms of uh, what people read in the general media is skewed based on their point of view. And to your point, there was really a boom in building golf courses in since 1982 and really in the 90s that might coincide to a degree with a boom in interest for the game driven by Tiger Woods and might just be coincidental. But there were a lot of golf courses that were built in about a 20-year span and it really oversaturated everything. And that's not a problem with golf, as you say. It's a problem with there are just too many courses in certain areas. And like restaurants or like anything else, when you have too many people vying for only so many customers, someone's going to have to go out of business, unfortunately. And no one wants to see a golf course go under, but it does happen from time to time. That that is correct, uh, and and you know the the building boom, which we generally look at from 1986 to 2005, uh, that 20 year period, uh, we added over 4,000 new courses to U.S. golf supply, so growth of over 40 percent. I think around 44 percent growth during that 20 year period. And you know one of the things about that growth that created you know sort of a aggravated or or you know made the challenges even more significant is that it was an entrepreneurial driven entrepreneur driven boom. So if you're thinking about somebody who decides to build a golf course in 1989 they're not generally thinking, you know, I'm going to build an accessible, affordable, simple, easy golf course. If it's if that golf course is being built by an entrepreneur, the the way that it went is they were all looking to build uh, a quote unquote championship golf course, something that could compete, you know, let's say for a top 100 list from Golf Magazine, let's say. And so what you had is you know the 4,000 new courses being built, and a lot of it was the same type of product, Tim. And so the demand was there. There was some significant latent demand for that type of product back then. But if you keep building the same product, eventually you're going to satisfy that demand, and then you're going to have an oversupply. And so the 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 closures, the supply correction that we've seen in the industry since 2006 uh, is really a reflection of that. It's really, uh, you know, the, the builders of the facilities, they outdrove the headlights of, of 
demand growth. And one problem with championship courses, as you call them, are they tend to be particularly difficult courses as well, which is fine for a lot of golfers who play constantly and like the challenge, but it does turn off a lot of beginner golfers. And that's where I'd really like to leap in. You talk a lot about beginning golfers in your reports, and I I think that might be one place that people can take some optimism for golf's future, that there are a lot of people picking up the game right now. And I don't know if those particular beginning golfers want to play at a course where they have to bring an extra set of balls just to get through it. No, you're, you're, uh, you're right, Tim. You know, one of the ways that we discuss this phenomenon is you would never go for your first day of skiing and immediately walk, you know, get off the chairlift and uh, go on a black diamond. And the ski industry, you, it's almost, uh, it's extraordinarily rare for you to show up at a ski facility and they don't have a, a bunny slope and they don't have a really good new uh, equipment, you know, current, current product equipment to rent, uh, that they don't have instruction so that you get comfortable with, with that activity. You, you, it's less intimidating and you have that opportunity to sort of break in uh, more gently rather than uh, a, a novice golfer going out and basically dropping them in the deep end of the pool. Uh, you would understand why golf you know, might have some challenges in terms of retaining people who are introduced to the game in that way. And there's no doubt that the industry has you know, a lot of uh, progress to be made in terms of the onboarding of people into the game. Golf can be quite intimidating, especially for people who haven't really spent much time in the golf course environment. And golf course owners and operators, and, and I don't mean to overgeneralize, of course there are owners and operators who do a terrific job of welcoming uh, novices, but overall, uh, we don't do a great job with that. And we don't have enough of the bunny slopes to uh, have people come on board golf uh, in a more gentle fashion. Yeah, when I was thinking about it in researching for this podcast, I tried to think of an easy course or a beginner level kind of a golf course that wasn't also seen as a course that's in kind of poor condition. And that's surprising to me, but then I think about it and all the nice courses that I think about in my head around where I live in the Boston area, they're all pretty difficult. They're not beginner courses, and the ones that are beginner courses are pitch and putts. And a lot of them, they're the kind of courses that have driving range mats instead of tee boxes. And that's fine, but it also gives a certain kind of if this is if you're beginning golf, this is the kind of course you have to play. And if you want to play a nice course, it's just going to be a frustrating day. And that's that again, I think can turn a lot of beginning golfers away from golf. Off course participation, as the NGF calls it, 
can also help that. And what is our off-course participation? Because you've started tracking that recently. Well, some components of off-course participation, Tim, we've tracked for many, many years. So, for example, people who go to driving ranges, practice ranges. Uh, we've always, uh, and I shouldn't say always, for I've been at the NGF for 10 years. Uh, for longer than that, we've tracked people who don't play on a golf course but have visited a, a practice range. And that number of exclusive practice range users has been around 5 million uh, for many, many years. And so that's one component of off-course participation. Uh, there's also the, the top golf phenomenon, uh, which you know, a lot of folks in the industry are paying very close attention to because Top Golf has been extraordinarily successful. And the other component, I'll talk more about Top Golf if, if you're interested, but the, the other component of off-course participation is, is simulators. So you've got regular practice and driving ranges, uh, you've got Top, top Golf, uh, and you've got simulator play. And the because of the success of Top Golf and simulator play growing as well, it's really important to not ignore the 20 million people who participate in off-course golf methods only. And we're only, sorry, not only, but who participate in golf uh, off course. And anybody who has the opportunity to swing a real club at a real ball and feel what it's like to get what we, what we call shot euphoria, you know, that's, that's golf's addictive drug. Uh, there's definitely uh, that potential for someone to get hooked on that feeling uh, at an off course type of participation and say, you know, I want to try and do that on a real golf course. So it's important that we don't ignore such significant engagement with the game that's happening away from the golf course. We've done ourselves a disservice historically by not looking more closely at that. And the, the, the greatest example, uh, in terms of philosophically how this is looked at is, you know, golf has been the only sport that in the measurement of participation, and this is, uh, NGF is partially to, to blame for this, is when we ask the question in our participation research, which is tied in with uh, a lot of uh, the measurement of a lot of other sports and activities, we're the only ones who said, you know, did you play golf on a golf course? in the past 12 months. If they ask about basketball, they didn't say, did you play five on five basketball in a gym? They just say, did you play basketball? So that means if I played one-on-one -on -one in my driveway with my son, well, I played basketball and I checked that box. And golf has just been uh, so focused on on-course participation. And because the off-course engagement has become so significant, uh, it's really important to look at the evolution of the way people engage with the game. 
We'll be back with our interview with Greg Nathan on Ground Under Repair in just a minute. But first, here's a word from another podcast I think you're going to like. This week on the Sunshine Boys, a little bit of talk about the trap. Gentlemen, this is a business. When the Yankees and uh, Tim's beloved Red Sox don't come to town, there's 11,000 people. Baseball honored Latin players' contribution to baseball at the All-Star Game, and it sent us down memory lane. And I always uh, date the demise of the big machine to the day they traded uh, Dick Wagner, traded Tony Perez uh, for Woody Fryman. But um, (laughs) the proverbial ham sandwich. Then some playoff races. Will the Cubs get back in it? Will the Rays stay in it? To tie it back to the Cubs a little bit, I think that's really the common theme here is can you trust your starting pitchers? Chicago right now can't. Tampa Bay can. So I think they're going to stick around. That's the Sunshine Boys on iTunes, Stitcher, and Blog Talk Radio. I think a big next step for golf then would be trying to marry up the on-course experience with the experience at, say, a Top Golf or some of these simulators. There's one around me that calls itself a golf bar that really, it looks like a bowling alley, but with golf simulators. And it has the same kind of atmosphere of people just sitting around with their friends and a few drinks and this game that they're kind of playing almost in the background. But that's a new way to take in the sport. And it It's a really good way to grow golf for people who are short on time, perhaps, because golf, as we know, can be a time-consuming activity. And that's something that even the USGA is really working hard to try and work on with their Play 9 initiative, too. True. True. I I, I would say, Tim, and maybe this goes against convention, that I think too much ink is spent talking about uh, pace of play uh, and how long it takes to play golf. People prioritize time and money in their life uh, based on, on things that they enjoy, things that they find that are fun. And cutting you know, eight minutes off my 18-hole round of golf or cutting 15 or 20 minutes off my 18-hole round of golf, is that really going to change the world? No, it isn't. It's really about making uh, golf more fun and having people think that's, a, that's how I want to spend my time. Because if I, if I love something, if I really enjoy something, if I find it incredibly satisfying, I'm going to carve the time out for it. And I'm going to find the discretionary income to do it. Uh, But in terms of these more bite-sized pieces of time, you know, having a golf activity that you could do in an hour or two hours, it's absolutely valuable. People have oversubscribed lives. And Top Golf or Simulator Golf are perfect outlets for people to enjoy a social activity uh, with food and beverage and time with friends and a cool environment where golf is involved. And we've been studying latent demand, Tim, for, for many, many years. Uh, by our definition, you know, latent demand is the 
the number of people who do not currently play on course golf, but who are interested who in our research, they give the top two answers when asked, how interested are you in playing golf now? And we've changed that question to how interested are you in playing on a golf course now? And that number's at an all time high, 40 million people, 40 million Americans give the top two answers to that question. Uh, and that means that golf has an enormous pool of prospects. And the success of Topgolf is the greatest evidence we have, the best manifestation, live manifestation of latent demand. That here with Topgolf, you have a less intimidating, less serious, quote unquote, more fun uh, golf related activity that incorporates food and beverage, technology gaming. These are a lot of things that are popular right now. And it's, uh, you know, it can be a one hour, two hour activity. So I think golf is extraordinarily fortunate. I don't know of any other sport that has such an attractive on-ramp uh, in this way as Top Golf represents. And I think that's a good segue into talking about the research that the NGF has done into participation in golf by millennials and this generation that is, they have a unique take on golf, even in general. And there's, there's a lot of ink, as you would say, spent on how they're supposedly turning away from golf, but the the research you've done seems to speak to the contrary, that there is a really good opportunity for golf in that generation. There's just a few difficulties that we hadn't really thought about around golf before. You know, Tim, golf's challenges with millennials are no different than any other uh, pay-for-play activity that takes time is this particular generation uh, more than others that, that anyone, you know, it's behavioral scientists, uh, social scientists have seen, you know, with the amount of college and credit card debt that this generation is carrying, uh, the life stage delays. So getting married later, getting jobs later, uh, buying homes later, starting careers later. Uh, we don't believe that we haven't lost this generation of millennials. Their, their engagement with golf, many of them has been delayed and will be delayed and they will pick it up later. But the, the, the disservice that's being done by those who say, Oh, you know, I've seen article headlines that say, oh, millennials are so over golf or millennials, you know, don't care about golf. Well, there's more than six million millennial golfers, six million uh, golf on course golf participants between uh, the ages of 18, uh, 18 to 34. Now, that's totally in proportion 
with the component of the U.S. population that that age group represents. So I don't want I I will I won't gloss over the fact that the millennial participation rate in golf has fallen in a meaningful way uh, over the past 20 years. But that's more of a function of their financial situation and life stage delays than anything else. Uh, there th through our millennial study, there are three main segments. And the largest segment, um, you know, we generally call uh, throwbackers. The largest segment, which is about 3 million of the 6 million participants, they enjoy the game exactly the way their parents uh, the way their parents did. They appreciate the the traditions. Uh, they appreciate the the inherent qualities uh, that the game represents, and they enjoy it the same way. Uh, and then there's two other groups. Uh, there's a group that we call the the, the breakfast ballers. Uh, at one time we had <clears throat> we had called them the lunch ballers because a lot of millennials don't get up for breakfast. Uh, but that was our little joke. So we changed it to breakfast ballers. They're much more motivated by the social aspects than the competition or the traditional nature. They just like to get outdoors with their friends. And the game itself is not necessarily the, the lead motivator. And then there's a group uh, <clears throat> that are just, they're, they're on the fringe. They wouldn't really consider themselves to be golfers. But I think the number is about 6.2 million millennial golfers spending $5 billion in golf every year. So the idea that uh, millennials aren't engaged with golf uh, is also a bit misleading. Uh, but we could certainly do better in terms of the on-course experience becoming more dynamic, less intimidating, less serious. Some of those elements of the game are a little bit out of sync with the millennial mentality. And that's why Top Golf is such the fact that millennials go to Top Golf in droves. There's so much for, uh, for, for golf course owners and operators to learn by Top Golf success. So it's an interesting dynamic with the young people, um, but they're going to be playing some golf. There's 6 million plus playing on-course golf now, and golf's been around for 400 years, and it's not going anywhere. Oh, absolutely. One thing that the research has shown on as well is that golf could, if it wants to pick up more people, if, if, they, if we do want to increase participation in the game, while it is doing perfectly fine, if we want to increase participation in the game, we might need to worry about changing golf's brand just a little bit. And that's something that speaks very much to what I call the slogan of this podcast, which is golf is for everybody. I, I've always believed that. I've, I've always seen that, and I've always kind of combated this stereotype that golf has you know, to quote Caddyshack, some people don't belong is what I'm getting at is, and that's kind of a bad stereotype that golf's had for years. And what do you have to do about getting rid of that stereotype? And I think this research has spoken to that a lot, that 
we want golf to be for everyone. And I think that getting that message across to more people will increase participation in the game. And further than that, I think history's borne that out. I think Arnold Palmer and Tiger Woods and the booms that followed both of them have proven that. Agreed. You know, the, the, Tim, the, one of the things of being at the NGF for 10 years that I can't tell you how many times I've heard repeated that the barriers to the growth of the game are time, money, and difficulty. And through our study, a great uh, part of that could be to- is totally debunked. Um, when we look at people who are committed to golf, Tim, uh, the challenge is one of the things that is the most attractive to people who love the game. Now, golf isn't for everybody, but apparently golf is for people who enjoy taking on a challenge. So there are going to be people out there who may not take it on because uh, they like instant gratification. They don't want to do things that are really challenging. Okay, so maybe golf isn't for them. Uh, but in terms of time and money, now that I you know, talked a little bit about the challenge, uh, time and money, as I said, yeah, you know, they're barriers, but guess what? People prioritize things in their lives that they think are fun. And so it's really about that. It's about the golf environment being less intimidating, more hospitality-oriented, less serious, more inviting. And that's where there's, there is some great progress to be made. Uh, so that you know, more people feel comfortable, you know, those 40 million who are not playing on-course golf now who are interested in playing, well, we need to make that first experience that they have a lot better. And I think that there is a, a dynamic at the golf course uh, historically where to some degree it's taken for granted that people who show up at a golf course know what to do and where to go. Just for starters, they know what to do and where to go. Well, that's not always the case. And that's one of the ways that the golf industry could really improve in terms of being more open and accepting and just making those first experiences that much better. We had 2.5 million people take up golf for the first time in 2016. That's the all-time measured high. It's a, it's a number that's bigger than it was uh, at the height of Tiger mania. So if you think about it, having 2.5 million people take up the game for the first time, uh, then shouldn't the overall number of golf participants grow? Well, of course it should. But that is the, the manifestation of what, what we would call failed trials. You know, the, we've definitely seen a trend over the years of a lot of people trying the game and those fringe participants not sticking with it. And it's because they didn't have this, a great experience when they went to that company outing that they went to and tried golf on course for the first time. Or they went to this charity event with a, with a spouse 
and they had this opportunity to try it. So we have a long way to go, but I look at it as upside, that if golf becomes much better, uh, much more hospitality-oriented, much more inviting and accommodating to new players, uh, the gravity of the game will, will continue to bring people as it has. And that's such positive news that more people have taken up the game than, than ever before. Because as I mentioned before, the Tiger boom, and you mentioned it just now as well, that's become a narrative that can can be debunked in a lot of ways. That golf had this peak, and now that the person that drove it is not on top anymore, there's this perception that everything's on the on the downslope and that's not true that there are still people picking up the game more than ever and the challenge is keeping them on the course however you can keeping keeping them in the game through the humbling experience that is your first few rounds of golf and through the the things that can frustrate anybody with the game as well and as far as the cost goes, I agree. The cost will also come down with time because if that's what demand dictates, these courses have to stay in business. They will figure out a way to lower prices and there will be people out there like, for example, Golf Now has done a great job of this, offering any deal possible. So you can get out on the course for less money and that's going to drive participation as well. So it's a lot of good news coming from the research. And as anyone who's done research into anything knows, don't believe the headlines until you start doing research. So thank you so much, Greg Nathan of the NGF, the National Golf Foundation. Thank you for coming on the show to to give us some good news because people do waste a lot of time talking about all the bad news. It's my pleasure, Tim, and I uh, enjoy talking with you. And yeah, golf is, uh, we're very fortunate that, that golf is such an addictive game. There's a certain gravity around it uh, that will pull in you know, some of this, this uh, latent demand, the 40 million uh, prospects that we have. And, uh, you know, golf, golf has this amazing opportunity to activate more of this latent demand uh, to, to share this, this greatest game of all uh, with a lot of other people. And as I said, look, golf isn't for everybody, but you know what? Golf needs to be sold. Golf needs to be exposed to a greater number of people, a greater number of prospects. And, you know, a certain percentage of people who try it uh, are going to take to it for the same reason that you and I love it, are totally addicted to it, prioritize it in our lives. Uh, but it's not for everybody. But if we're going to find the people that it is for, well, we got to get out there and introduce this great game to people. And uh, maybe it can bring uh, so much satisfaction to other people's lives as it has to ours. Absolutely. I think that's a tremendous sentiment to, to go out on. Thank you once again for coming on to the show. One last thought on this. When Greg says a lot of ink was spent on negative stories about golf, he wasn't kidding. I noticed it myself when reading and listening to some of the work of golf's most brilliant minds. It seems like the people who present the sport to the world, well, sometimes we send an odd message out into the world about how golf has seen better days. That's part of the sales pitch these days. 
both on tour and on the local Muni. Of course people believe golf's in trouble. Golf keeps telling them it's in trouble. Maybe part of how we can erase this narrative is stop being the narrators. Stop talking about what was better 10 or 20 or 50 years ago. Start talking about what has always been great about golf and what's getting even better over time. That's not just me spouting a narrative. As you heard, that's what the data tells us. In other words, those are the facts. That's our show for this week. Thanks to Greg Nathan for joining me. And thanks to the National Golf Foundation for the research people need to help maintain and grow this wonderful game. You can learn more about the NGF on their website, ngf.org. Ground Under Repair is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Blog Talk Radio. So if you use any of those services, I would be very grateful if you could subscribe to the podcast. For any video game enthusiasts, we have a society in The Golf Club 2. Just search for Ground Under Repair. I think it's just me right now, but we're going to try and grow, and maybe we'll all design a few courses together, folks. How about that? Join me next week for another look at golf from a new angle. I'm Tim Williams, and this has been Ground Under Repair. Fairways and greens, everybody. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.